As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. So, Tracy, you know, we haven't talked about it in a while, but one recurring topic on the podcast over the years has been China's efforts to really sort of leap into the lead technologically. We've talked about it with a few different guests, invest aggressively in airlines, uh, semiconductors, uh, and so forth. Setting aside all the current noise, that's still like one of the bigger long-term storylines that attempt to sort of supplant the U.S. at the lead in the lead of a technological manufacturing and development. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's where a big portion of the uh, the trade war or the Trump administration's trade war with China actually came from. And that's why we see so much of it centered around technology, uh, things like ByteDance, TikTok, and uh, of course, 5G and Huawei. And uh, of course, we're seeing Beijing rolling out its uh, its new plans for I think it's for the next 20 years or something like that. And of course, tech dominance features quite highly once again. Absolutely. But it also like it takes it takes two to tango, because in addition to uh, China's own endeavors to leapfrog or surpass the U.S. in terms of technological development, there's also an ele- another element, which is that. A lot of the U.S. companies that we sort of associate with, you know, the great heritage of U.S. manufacturing, whether it's Boeing, GE or Intel Mm. with chips, all of them seem to be uh, not doing so great. So literally going in the other direction. Yeah. So this is something that I wasn't that aware of just because I've been outside of the U.S. for a while. But Intel... (laughs) seems to be struggling. So I I think in the summer, they said they were something like 12 months behind schedule when it comes to developing like their new next generation of chips. And uh, the share price has come down quite a bit since then. And it's sort of the polar opposite to what you see happening at some other chip companies like uh, TSMC over in Taiwan, for instance, they seem to be doing quite well during the pandemic. Well, relatively well. Yeah, I mean, you you have it exactly right. There seems to be going in the exact opposite direction, falling further and further behind. And their stock has really been uh, got hammered this summer. So like what happened is sort of an interesting question, because we could talk about China's research Mm -hmm. efforts, but how uh, this company that basically invented 
the industry, one of the, you know, to put the Silicon in Silicon Valley, so to speak, yeah. how it uh, lost its lead and ability to be one of the world preeminent manufacturers is itself a pretty interesting uh, storyline here. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I remember during the early 2000s, Intel was this massive, massive company and it had the branding and the advertising around it and it, just a huge deal. So it's interesting to see it um, sort of um, turning around this year. So uh, we're going to talk more about Intel and what happened. And I'm very uh, excited about our guest. We're going to be speaking with uh, Stacy Rasgan. He is a managing director, senior analyst, U.S. semiconductors at Bernstein Research, and uh, notably at a recent uh, Intel conference call after one of their quarters, the company didn't call on him, leading him to a subtweet the company on Twitter, <laughs> which is uh, always fun and doesn't happen that often with analysts. So, uh, Stacy, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. And, and by the way, um, uh, nobody knows what that tweet was about. <laughs> okay. There's, okay. There's no fair enough. That it was a subtweet of anything. <laughs> okay. So just on the day that you didn't get called on by Intel during their quarterly conference call, you tweeted cowards dot dot dot. But we'll we'll all pretend that we have no idea what that was about. Maybe it was something completely unrelated to your professional this, career. This, this is one of the mysteries of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it at that. It'll be a mystery forever. <laughs> we'll just leave that. We'll just leave that tweet. Um, but it is true that you didn't get called on. This, so this is true. that part, that is true. So let's forgetting the subtweet aside or whether it was a subtweet. What were you going to ask? Like, uh, you know, if here's your chance. Uh, Stacy Raskin at a Bernstein Research. You're up. Uh, what would you have asked? Oh, boy, I don't even remember what I was going to ask at this point. I have to go back <laughs> and look at my question list. Um, I'm sure it was something pointed, though. Um, it, it typically is. I have a, a, a reputation, I suppose, for asking those kinds of questions. And it, it's not really my fault. I can't help it. My, my BS detection threshold is set kind of low. And I tend to forget who I'm talking to once I get going, so I can't help it. But it doesn't always engender a lot of love. Um, but that's okay. I don't have to. Uh, I, I don't have to play. This is going to be a good conversation. Yeah. This this should be a great conversation. I'm looking forward to it. We'll 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 see if that threshold gets hit or not. <laughs> I feel like sell side analysts with a, a low BS detector is fairly um, unusual, or at least we don't get to talk to many of them. Um, it goes with the territory. <laughs> can you set the scene for us? Like, how bad are things at Intel at the moment, in your view? Like Joe said, you're a sort of noted critic of the company recently. What's going on there? How bad is it? I mean, it's it's problematic right now. And so, you know, you started out um, uh, the, the beginning of this call talking about some of the issues they're having with manufacturing. Um, it's important to, to note these are not new issues. So the, the current issues are with seven nanometer, seven nanometer process. And you're right. In, in July, they disclosed further delays there. They said the process was was 12 months delayed. They said the products. I think it versus the the prior roadmap were six months delayed. That being said, this is not the first time they've had they've had a problem. Ten nanometers, which was the prior generation manufacturing technology, and if you want, we can go into what the numbers and everything mean. But but just in in general, ten yeah. nanometers was the prior one. They had big problems with that one as well. That one was delayed for five or six years and forced them to sit on on the you know the two generations back, which was called fourteen nanometers. They were sitting on that one for many more years than they intended, but 
even 14 nanometers was delayed a little bit when they when they originally launched it. It was it took about a year longer than they had originally anticipated to reach sort of like fully manufacturable yields and, and reach full volume. So these are not new problems at Intel. These have been building over probably half a decade plus, and they finally hit a wall. So I mean that that's sort of the the the, the current state of affairs. So Tracy and I aren't technologists, but we see these terms or hear them 10, man, 10 nanometer, 7 nanometer. Why don't you take this moment to describe like what these means? I mean, I get it. Okay, smaller and smaller chips and efficiency and all that. But talk to us a little bit about like what, what we're really talking about. Yeah, you, you bet. So in theory, like it, it used to be like some measure of the size of the transistor the, that was called the gate length at, 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 at one point. Um, in reality, these numbers are complete and total marketing. They don't actually mean anything in <laughs> isolation, um, and they're not comparable from one company to another. So, for example, an Intel 10 nanometer part is not the same as a, as a TSMC 10 nanometer part. I, I'll, I'll give you an example of this, by the way. When, when TSMC went from what they purportedly called 20 nanometers to 16, they didn't shrink the transistors at all. What they did is they changed the structure of those transistors. Um, they went from what, and again, I... We, we can talk about what these terms mean, but they went from a transistor that was called a, a planar transistor structure to a 3D or a FinFET transistor structure. But they didn't make them any smaller. They didn't squeeze them closer together. They didn't do anything. They just went from planar to FinFET and called it 16. No shrink, no nothing. So, the, so that, that's the thing. The, the, the numbers themselves actually stopped really having actual meaning oh, more, than a, more than a decade ago. It's been marketing ever, ever since. What you can think about them, though, in, in terms of meaning, it, it is it, it typically some measure of improved um, transistor density. So squeezing more and more transistors onto a, a given area of silicon, it is some measure of that. And with every further node, in, in every further transition in theory, you should be getting better performance out of these chips and, and better power efficiency. This is really what Moore's Law is, by the way. It's sort of these three legs of right. the stool. It's, it's better performance, better power, and, and lower cost. And by the way, when people talk about Moore's Law dying, which is sort of the situation we're in right now, it does not mean that it's impossible to, to, to shrink these things or to make the transistors any smaller. What it actually means is that the cost leg of that three-legged stool is going out the window. So we can still do this. Like engineers are smart. Uh, if there's, a, if there's a, a business case to shrink, they'll do it. But now we have to pay for it. Whereas before, we used to get it every two years for free. It was fantastic. right? But that's kind of the situation <laughs> of what's going on now. So we keep comparing in, in this discussion um, Intel to uh, TSMC, but my understanding is they're, they're not exactly the same company, right? The business model is slightly different. Could you maybe yes. explain how they differ? You bet. So there are two primary um, uh, semiconductor, broad semiconductor business models in the industry. The first is called, uh, they call it an IDM or integrated device manufacturer. And these are companies that both design and manufacture their own chips like, like Intel, right? The issue is, you know, a leading edge semiconductor manufacturing facility can cost these days, you know, $10 billion, like it's very expensive. And if you're going to build a factory that costs that much, you better have a lot of revenue in order to put through it in order to cover those costs. And mo most semiconductor companies do not. And so decades ago, this became clear. And the supply chain atomized, it split apart, and you gave rise to what's known as the fabless foundry model, where you have companies, um, say like an NVIDIA or a Qualcomm, these are referred to as fabless companies in, in the sense that they do not have fabs. Fab is a, is a semiconductor manufacturing facility. They only design chips, and then they outsource the manufacturing to a company known as a foundry. This is what TSMC does. 
And they're able, because of this model, they can agglomerate demand together from many semiconductor companies and build up the revenue scale that is required to support the, the, the high costs of, of, of manufacturing um, that ordinarily um, all of these companies would not be able to support on their own. And so that's what TSMC does. And it's, it's been kind of a, 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 a amazing, I mean, in the sense that, you know, for the longest time, Intel talked about being an IDM as being an advantage because you could very tightly couple both the process and the design together and, and get really good products. And I guess as long as, as both of those things were on the right trajectory, that was true. The problem is now because their, their, their manufacturing side has fallen by the wayside, it's actually really impacting them. Not only can they not tightly couple those two things together anymore, but it interferes with the design because you design for a specific manufacturing process. If the process isn't ready, you got to throw that stuff out. And so the, the fabulous foundry model, the foundry model itself actually seems to be um, uh, growing. It, it's ascending now. Um, it seems to have the advantage, especially because they are able to, at least at this moment, to stay on their manufacturing roadmap. So we can kind of think of Intel in theory as you know, designing chips a la NVIDIA and also having a fab a la TSMC. But what you're saying is it sounds like you can't really like sort of neatly divide the two. And if they're having trouble on the fab side, on the foundry side, then that also bleeds through to the design side. Yeah, because you, you don't design in isolation, right? You have to design... Right. For a specific set, of, there, there's a set of design rules that go with a specific manufacturing process. So, for example, if I'm Intel, you know, and, and, and we'll probably get to this, but Intel is talking about using outsourcing potentially in a bigger way. Intel cannot just take their current designs and just throw them over the wall to TSMC. They have to completely redesign them um, to, to correspond to TSMC's manufacturing process and 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 and, and TSMC's design rules. Mm. So these two things are are coupled, and if you have problems with one, it causes problems with the other. Sure. Wait, so could could we delve into the manufacturing problems at Intel a little bit more then? Mm -hmm. Like what exactly is happening there and what's gone wrong? Because, of course, as we mentioned in the intro, you know, Intel was supposed to be the state of the art global standard for chip making for many, many years. And now mm -hmm. it seems like it's not. Yeah. So so first I want to step back and, and say um this stuff is very, very difficult to do. So the fact that people are having problems is not in and of itself a shock. Uh, these are the most technologically advanced products that humanity has ever devised. And I don't know if uh, either of you have ever been in a, in a, in a, in a semiconductor factory, but you, you can think about this. I, I mean, if, if, if I just take these node sizes as, as gospel, which I, I know they're not, but I mean, let's just, just take them. You know, at, at, at Intel's right now is delivering 10 nanometer products, right? When, when they're actually doing the manufacturing and they're imprinting these, these features onto the, onto the wafers, I'll, I'll try to be simplistic here, but they use, use a laser light to, to do this. The laser right now has a wavelength of 193 nanometers. So they're printing purportedly 10 nanometer features using a, a wavelength of light that's almost 20 times the size of, of the feature that they're trying to print. Like, I'm amazed that any of this stuff works at all. So just, just to get that out of the way, like it's, it, it's astonishing, but this is why I, one reason that I love this space, because it, it's, it's like, I said, I'm just continually in awe of, of the things that, 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 that humanity collectively has, has been able to pull together here. But in terms of specifically what's going on at Intel, so at, at, I'll step back at 14 nanometers, like I said, that was a, a minor delay. Um, it was, like I said, it took them a, about a, a, an extra year to yield the process. By the way, when I, when I say yields, 
that's a simple concept. That is, you know what, I'm making a, a silicon wafer full of chips. How many of those chips are good? That percentage is your yield. The more, the higher yield, the lower your cost. So that's a good thing. Um, and it's that yield that determines how quickly you ramp a process into production. 14 nanometers took a little bit longer. We still don't know why, but it didn't hurt them because back then they had a genuine five plus year process leadership. So they burned a little bit of it, but it was fine. With 10 nanometers, we kind of know qualitatively what was what was wrong. Um, Intel had was using multiple patterning on some of their layers for the first time. Um, again, we can talk about what that is if, if we need to, but mm. they were using a specific type of, of, of advanced process for the first time and it caused problems. They were using um, uh, new materials at the time, like cobalt and, and other things, and they were using other techniques to get a much greater density improvement that was normal. With a normal node transition, they, their, their transistor density, um, transistors per millimeter squared of, of, of silicon area, typically went up by maybe 2.2 to 2.4 times. With 10 nanometers, it was a 2.7 times improvement. So the way the company has discussed this is it was just too big of a leap. And they, they bit off more than they could chew and it caused problems. Um, I have no idea what's going on at seven nanometers. All I know is that it is, it is something that's completely different from anything that hit them at 10. And seven was supposed to fix those problems at 10. It, it was a smaller density improvement. It was only 1.7. They're using a, a new lithography technique that's called EUV or extreme ultraviolet lithography that was going to replace that multi-patterning multi and fix those problems. And so they were taking steps in order to, 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 to learn lessons from the 10 nanometer debacle and, and, and to repair it. And that, that's why the seven nanometer announcement came as such a shock because they've been telling everybody, you know, for a year, seven nanometers is on track. We've learned our lessons. It's going to be good. And then they came out and just dropped the bomb on us. And, and this is why going forward, it's so problematic because their credibility on this stuff is now zero. Right. So when they're telling us well, we think we've got a handle on it, we think we know what's wrong. I, I mean, like nobody knows what to believe anymore. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. So many good questions. I think we're going to have to extend this uh, episode to about two or three hours. But in all seriousness, we saw, you know, Tracy mentioned it uh, when they dropped this bomb this summer. Uh, the stock took quite a reaction. I mean, it was a major plunge. and I don't think it's like uh, really recovered uh, very much since then. Was that because this was understood to be fundamentally different, as you describe it, than those oh, other oh, yeah. delays? Because there's this nobody really understands. Like, explain the sort of financial market reaction to this one versus the previous setbacks they've had. Yeah, you you, you bet. And, and I need to fold AMD, I think, into this discussion a little bit. Um, so if you go look at AMD stock um, versus Intel's, they're polar opposites, right? And, and part of the reason there is AMD is now on a trajectory and, and they've come a long way. AMD, you know, four, five years ago, the controversy on that stock was, are they going bankrupt or not? 
and the stock bottomed out, you know, in, in below $2. That, that's kind of where it was. The right. stock now is, you know, close to 80 and it's, and it's been even higher. The reason is a, AMD actually, um, uh, they, they had already gone fabulous back in the financial crisis. Um, they had been using Global Foundries, uh, which is a, as another foundry. And Global Foundries back in the, you know, 2011, 2012, 2013 timeframe shot AMD in the foot. Um, Global Foundries had problems with their process um, technology as well. And then AMD, I mean, the business was in, was in total freefall. I mean, their, their, their revenues got cut in half. They had four or five different rounds of restructuring. It was pretty awful. They had a last Hail Mary effort to get a new architecture, which they're delivering now. They're on their third generation. Um, and that architecture was extremely successful. And they made the shift from Global Foundries to TSMC. And so now you're in a situation where, where AMD actually has a competitive and in some cases even superior architecture, and they have a superior process technology. And so they've been taking share from Intel, um, both on the client side PCs, as well as in servers. Okay. Now, the real bulls on AMD, you know, they have this vision, right, that AMD is going to go, you know, I'll, I'll make up the numbers, but I mean, this, you know, by, 2020, by 2022 or 2023, they'll be doing 250 or three bucks in earnings. And by 2025, they'll be doing five or six bucks in earnings. And, and this is a duopoly market. It's them and Intel primarily. So all that would be coming at Intel's expense. But AMD has been kind of a dream. And so before Intel announced these seven nanometer issues, it was kind of like, well, okay, maybe AMD will get to this 2 or $3 number in a few years. But by then, a Intel will be going hard on seven. They'll have fixed the issues at 10 that gave AMD an advantage. And at that point, like it's all over, right? And, and Intel is going to be back on, on, on the ascendancy. Now, because of these issues with seven nanometers, like with AMD, now you, you could believe whatever you want. Like there's, there's no pushback because you hmm. have no idea what Intel is going to be doing at that point. Um, and it makes the idea of the, 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 the x86 CPU market and PCs and servers, which today is sort of like a 90-10 or an 80-20 kind of market. You know, if you wanted to believe that it could be a, a true duopoly, a 50-50 or 60-40 market in a few years, if you want to believe that you can. And that all comes if it happens at Intel's expense and the, 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 the driving force behind it is a continued loss potentially of, of competitiveness on Intel's part. And, and with the seven nanometer delay, which like I said, was, was really a bomb that was dropped on people, it becomes very easy if you want to believe that sort of thing to believe it. So this was potentially a thesis changing announcement for Intel. That's why hmm. the stock reacted like it did. So is this just, I don't know, is all of this just down to Intel doing basically a chip version of vertical integration for far too long when other companies um, decided to specialize in, in various ways. Yeah. So again, I don't know why Intel's having this, but it's kind of amazing that they are, because I mean, look, Intel has 113,000 employees. They spend over $13 billion a year in revenue, which, which is like almost double AMD's revenue. In, in R&D, Intel spends that much. It's almost double AMD's revenue. AMD's growing though. I don't, I don't know what's going on. Like we, we don't, we don't know why. And, and now by the way, it, it's, it's causing bigger problems because like Intel is faced with a choice now and, and we'll find a little bit more about this in January. Intel is now make, trying to make the decision. Are they going to outsource it in, in a greater fashion, right? Intel outsources some, don't, don't get me wrong. Like in, Intel's bought companies like Altera and Mobileye that use TSMC. Um, and for some of Intel's internal volumes, you know, maybe not CPUs, but like chipsets and peripherals and other things, they, they've used TSMC. So it's not new to Intel, but I mean, Intel is now talking about if they can't fix their seven nanometer problems, they may have to scrap it entirely and, and outsource that, that as well. Um, and so there's a lot of unanswered questions with Intel right now. Like right now, I have no idea what the company looks like in three years. 
That's probably hmm. the biggest problem. Like if they were to come out and give us a concrete plan and, and give us certainty that they could execute on that, I think the stock still would have fallen as you know as much as it did, but maybe you could felt a little more comfort with buying it at the bottom. Like right now, it, it is it is very easily a value trap because again, we, we don't know what's going to happen in three years. They're going to make some announcement in January. We don't know what they're going to say. And in the meantime, the competitive problems, no matter what they do, are only going to get worse. AMD is going to keep taking share on some trajectory. Apple made an announcement yesterday. So like the, a good chunk of, of, I wouldn't be surprised if, if three quarters of Apple's notebook business goes away from Intel next year, which I'm not sure is in the numbers. I know you didn't want to talk so much about short term, but I still think numbers next That's year, fine. I still sure. think people are smoking crack next year. The numbers are too high. They need to come down. They may need to come down more. So this is dangerous. You mentioned that you don't know what Intel is going to look like in three years. So how difficult does that make your job as an analyst in trying to determine, you know, an appropriate price target or way of valuing a, yeah. a company where there is this much uncertainty? Yeah. Well, uh, th- th- let me let me step back. Because my job as an analyst, like my favorite thing is controversy, right? Because it, it gives me a reason <laughs> to talk to my clients. So um, from that standpoint, this is fantastic, right? Because I don't think this controversy is going to go away at any time. In terms of sizing it, I'm, I mean, I mean, look, like I have to sort of like our published model right now is 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 status quo, and like I said, we're we're decently below. I think the street's too high. But one thing we can do is sort of like run out scenario analysis and like what could things look like. We've we've done some of this, and it's actually kind of interesting because. You know, if you sort of step back and you say, well, what would an Intel look like if they were fab light or if they were fabless? If if I had hmm. a magic genie that just snapped her fingers and they were fabless tomorrow with the same competitive environment as we have today, it doesn't necessarily look bad. Like gross margins would be lower because they would be paying a margin to, to a TSMC to, to make the chips. At the same time, they wouldn't be having to invest nearly as much in their own factory. So you'd save CapEx you'd probably save R&D because you wouldn't be paying for, for uh, research and development for process technology development. And so the operating margins and free cash flows could be just as high as they are now, if not higher. Like that's possible if you had a magic genie that made the transition instant. The problem is I don't have a magic genie. It's going to take years, whatever they do. In the meantime, it's going to throw more uncertainty in their roadmap. And I'm not sure it's appropriate to take today's competitive environment, which is already deteriorating, and apply it to that, you know, to, as an overlay to that model. And today, where you have like a, like I said, a 90-10 or an 80-20 model, maybe by the time they're finished, it could very easily be a 60-40 or a 50-50 model. And so the more they talk about this, you know, they, they, it's they, these are these are the kinds of things that you can roll out as, as an analyst. And we've done that and we'll continue to do that. Let me ask you a broader question. I mean, we we started talking about we started this conversation talking about the context of the uh, tech trade war, some of the actions the current administration has made against. Huawei and so forth. Should this be, um, you know, stepping aside from your pure stock up or down hat for a second or uh, sell side analyst hat per se, but if Intel ends up needing to rely on Taiwan Semi to uh, make its chips, is that the type of issue that, you know, could rise, should rise to some level of uh, anxiety in D.C.? Yes, I absolutely think it should, because you think about this, right? Uh, right now, you know, broadly in the world, there are only a few companies that can do leading edge semiconductor manufacturing anymore. It's it's Intel, Samsung, and TSMC. That is it. Everybody else who has ever, you know, been at the forefront of semiconductor manufacturing has exited the leading edge. That doesn't mean that other players don't make stuff. I mean, there's there's plenty of folks out there with fabs, but in terms of the the, the bleeding edge stuff, it's only those three companies anymore. 
Um, only one of them is U.S. And, and the U.S. one is having problems. And so if you think about this, like, what does that mean for Taiwan? I mean, they always used to say, like, data is the new oil. I mean, maybe semiconductors are the new oil now. Um, hmm. And and Taiwan, like, if this happens, I mean, already is kind of turning into potentially the most strategically important country on the face of the earth. And it's also 150 miles offshore from China, and they kind of think they own the ground that it sits on. So, right. yeah, <laughs> I think... This is potentially problematic. And, and, and again, like even if Intel wanted to outsource like the bulk of their leading edge to Taiwan, like, is it politically viable? Like, I, I don't know. You know, there, there's other things going on in the U.S. now. I, I mean, like one of the few sort of like bipartisan initiatives that are out there right now is um, around um, strategic semiconductor investment. Like certainly the Chinese are doing this. I mean, semis are a big part of their have been a big part of their five year plans. Um, they've already been pushing towards self-sufficiency. Everything that's going on in terms of the trade war and the sanctions and everything else is just going to drive China to, to, to push towards self-sufficiency even more because we have them by the balls right now, right? I, I mean, if, if, if we wanted to completely cut China's semiconductor ambitions off of the knees, right now we have the ability to do that by banning semi-sales, but it's in particular banning semi-cap and, 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 and EDA, um, design software sales. We're already kind of doing that to Huawei. If we want to do it broader, like that's it. So they have to move towards self-sufficiency. And I don't know what the political viability of of, of having like the last bastion of like uh, advanced uh, U.S. based uh, semiconductor manufacturing being outsourced to a foreign country. I don't, I don't know how the, how that's going to fly. Like we'll see, but it's got to certainly be on on top of mind for any of the policymakers that are looking at this area. Right. On that note, do you think there's a role for policy to play in, I guess, helping out Intel if, if you think that it's a strategically important industry for the United States? Well, well yes and no. So, so there is, have always, already been efforts to invest in, and there, were, there was something called the Chips for America Act, which we actually had bipartisan support, um, one of the few things. Um, I think that was subsumed into the National Defense Authorization Act. Um, but there is talk of, of, of funding for semis. Now, in terms of Intel's problem, like Intel's issue right now is not having enough, is, it, it is not not having enough money. They've got plenty of money. So throwing money at the problem is not going to fix it, right? But, you know, could you make it easier in general for them? I, I mean, they're talking about things like, um, you know, investments for manufacturing, um, ta tax incentives, uh, R&D incentives, DARPA is getting involved. That sort of, so all of that stuff would, would be good. One issue I have with some of the things that have been throwing around is I still think they're a drop in the bucket. So we've seen a few things. Um, there's already some funding. Now, TSMC is going to actually be building a fab in Arizona. It's a PR headline right now. It's, it's uh, like, I can't remember, 20,000 wafers per month. Ultimately, they're going to invest like $12 billion or something over eight years. I mean, that, that's a rounding error, frankly. And then some of the numbers we saw in some of these um, initiatives, there's really been no funding that's actually been um, apportioned yet. They were talking about like whatever it was, 28 billion or 30 billion or something like that over a number of years. I, I personally feel like if the US is really serious about this, we need an Apollo moment. We need like hundreds of billions of dollars. I'm I'm not if we really want to make sure that we 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 have you know the majority of, of manufacturing that it's rebased in the US. Right now it's all moving to Asia. Um I don't know that the political um uh, appetite is there to in, to invest that much money. Um but it's but I'll take whatever we can get at this point. Like it's a, like whatever they want to do, it's a start. Um, so I think dot like long story short, I think dollars would would obviously would help Intel and a number of other players in the U.S. just to make it easy, but it won't fix the the technology problems that are potentially driving the shift. In right. The first place. Intel has to do that on their own.
As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. One of the previous guests we've regularly had on uh, the show, Dan uh, Wang, he's a technology analyst at GavCal, and he talks about how like technology comes in sort of two parts, or manufacturing knowledge is in two parts. One is just sort of like, blueprint, which you can sort of like write down on a piece of paper. And then the other is just sort of like this, like tacit sort of understanding knowledge, like how to build a factory, which is not something you just like write down on a piece of paper. There's no like guide that someone can say, oh, this is how you build a factory and just follow it. And it's something that sort of like exists in the collective knowledge of people who have been building factories for their whole careers. So going back to the seven nanometer debacle, is there something that's like identifiable where like this some sort of like knowledge or transmission of knowledge from one generation of engineers is getting degraded or lost within Intel or within U.S. manufacturing? Is there some is there some sort of identifiable leak where these things that once used to be known and ongoing learnings and improvement yeah. is just not happening the way it used to be? Well. So I'll talk about like um or, or like more general and more specific. So I mean in general, yeah. there's always a learning curve, and so like like if, like, like I'm, I'll make it up. Like I'm, I've got ten nanometers done, and I'm going to seven, right? Yeah, seven nanometers is going to incorporate all of the issues potentially that 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 the prior gen, the ten had, plus a whole bunch of new ones. And so the fact that they still haven't really fixed ten, and they and by the way, they really haven't. They're ramping ten nanometers right now. But it's 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 impacting significantly impacting their margins, which tells you that the yields are not good. They have but they have to ramp it. They can't wait any longer because of the competitive situation with A and B, right? So they've got to ramp it, um, even though the yields aren't good. But if if you don't completely nail like the prior node, all of those problems are going to still pretty much exist on the on the subsequent plus a whole host of new problems. And so that may be part of it. And there's there's always learning curves on 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 this stuff. And if if your learning curve is too shallow, it it, it can impact. Um, in terms of the employees, and, and, you, and you asked, like, are there issues with, like, knowledge transfer? So, again, I, I don't know specifically what's going on at, at Seven. I do know that in 2016, Intel had a very sizable layoff. Hmm. And I know that there were worries that they had been laying off, like, some of the more senior employees at the time. And, and there were lawsuits. You can go back and look. Like, there was a whole bunch of stuff in the news flow around this. So I have no idea what those employees were doing. I don't know if they would have had anything to do with, like, the subsequent Seven enemies. I don't know. But I do know that there was um, talk of a potential brain drain several years back uh, when, when they had that layoff. Hmm. So who knows? With, with seven, again, I, my, my biggest concern with seven was, again, they, they never really seemed to nail 10 either. Um, and, and that's going to, to propagate, and it seems like it is. 
So we've discussed all these problems um, and you clearly have some concerns about this company. How does management actually go about restoring confidence um, in the business model? Like what, what should they be doing at this moment in time? Well, I, I mean, they're, they're trying, right? So, I mean, look, there's, there's the magic solution, which is like, I wake up tomorrow morning and they say, Hey, we fixed it. It's all good. I, I guess that would solve things. Although I, I'm not holding my breath for something like that. They're doing other things. I, I mean, so, you know, they're, what they're doing now is they're, they're trying to focus on other areas for differentiation. And so it's, it, they're, it's not necessarily just process, you know, it's process. It's also things like packaging. They're doing what's known as a chiplet architecture now, where like I could have a single product that say will go into a PC someday. That is not a single monolithic chip anymore. It's a whole bunch of little chiplets that may be made in different places on different processes, depending on whatever's best for that particular functionality. And packaging those together in clever ways. Intel's got good IP there. And so they're starting to leverage that. They're also trying to leverage software and, and, and other things. And like all of these things are all important. They always were. Other players are also good at some of those other things as well. But they're they're going to try the best they can you know, if process is not going to be the end all and be all and everything to, to try to leverage those, those other areas. And like I said, they're going to have to make a call like one way or the other um, in terms of what to do. Do you give up on decades of, of leading edge manufacturing, you know, you know, prowess and, 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 and leadership and, and bite the bullet and, 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 and go to TSM? Like, I, I don't know. I mean, they'll have to make that call in one way or the other. And it'll, it'll, we'll, see, we'll know in a few years if it was the right call or not. These are going to be pretty high, high profile decisions. I also think tactically they need to reset personally. They, and again, if we're just talking about the stock for a moment, um, I think they need to reset expectations. I think numbers are too high. And, and the problem I have right now, I, I mentioned it once before. I don't know what it looks like in three years. And not only am I below the street next year, but I can't tell you with the, with with confidence that next year represents the bottom either. And that's the biggest problem. The stock itself is hard to buy unless you feel like expectations have been sufficiently reset. So they can grow off the trough. And I, and I don't think they're there yet. And I'm not sure. So far, the current management team has not shown a willingness uh, to sort of like rip the bandaid off. Right. I mean, they've, they've, they've seems like they've wanted to, you know, to go in dribs and drabs. And that's usually not a good way to go for stock performance, especially when things are on the decline. So we'll see what they do. So is the issue just that, you know, especially as they um, don't, you know, they fall behind in, um, their ability to, you know, to develop cutting-edge foundries, potentially outsource more. Is the issue just that Intel will still be Intel, or Intel will still be there and be competitive, but it's just another chip company? And there's NVIDIA and TSMC and AMD and others, and what was once the sort of category-defining company is just, is just another player. Yeah, I mean, look, so I, I'm not worried about Intel going to zero. Like, it, it's a behemoth right. still. I mean, e even today, go look at their numbers. They're doing almost five bucks in earnings this year and delivering, I can't even remember the number, something like 18 billion plus in free cash flow, right? And again, even even if it's on decline, like, right. those are still pretty hefty numbers, right? And they, they've got a ton, they've got 113,000 employees and they spend, like, listen, 13 billion plus a year in R&D. It's hard to believe that they're not, they're not good things embedded within that, right? That right. have value. So, so you have that, but I, but I think you're right. I mean, if you're going to go to a scenario where, you know, they're no longer differentiated on process where, where their, their destiny would at that point would now be in TSMC's hands, you know, like their, their, their ability to ship would be limited by how much capacity they could get from TSM at that point, similar to how AMD is today. Right. That's a problem. Um, and where they're trying to differentiate and all these things where other players are good as well. Yeah. You're, you're right. It becomes, 
you know, they're, they're, they no longer have that secret sauce necessarily in that point. They're competing, you know, on a much more even footing with lots of other players who are also very, very, very good. And so you have that, that, that kind of a problem. I mean, you, you can go look at other tech companies like an IBM, for example, which again, IBM, and by the way, I, I used to work at IBM research, like, like way back in the days. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great company. They got fantastic IP and everything else, but I mean, it's been a financial engineering sort of thing for, for many years, right? They haven't grown, you know, and, right. and, and that's kind of what it is. They've, they've, they've been pulling like increasingly financial levers and sort of manufacturing earnings. And, you know, that, that may be a scenario, like if Intel can, can kind of get their mojo back, we may see something like that. Um, it won't go to zero, but you're not going to see a ton of multiple expansion, like with, with, with something like that either. Right. And like, this is the thing with Intel right now. I mean, like the bull case on it from here is it is very cheap and maybe something will go right. It's cheap hope. And both of those things are true. Like it is extremely cheap, even on my numbers, which are below it, it is inexpensive and maybe something will go right. I mean, that, that's kind of the bull, but that, that is not like a, a hugely compelling case. You never, <laughs> you never sell a tech stock because it's just because it's expensive. You never buy a tech stock just because it's cheap. I think that's where we are with Intel right now. <laughs> Anything else sort of other last thoughts, Stacy, that we didn't hit on that you think is sort of important for understanding this story? No, I think that covers it for Intel. Like, if, you, if you'd like to take, talk broader on semis, I'm happy to come back anytime, by the way. Well, we'll have to do it again sometime because I do feel like that it's a fascinating uh, subject and I was uh, pretty transfixed. So really appreciate you joining us and uh, we'll have you back. You bet. My pleasure. Anytime. Yeah, thanks so much. Hopefully, uh, hopefully you get to go on the next Intel call, huh? They kind of have to let you know. Oh, uh, I figure like, look, either, either I'm going to be first in the queue or I'm never getting on again, probably after <laughs> that article. And, and by the way, I, I had no comment to the reporter. Like, I didn't comment on that. <laughs> Not, nothing in there was for me. You know? <laughs> well, thank you for commenting to us. Yeah, yeah, I know. You bet. Anytime. Yeah, Tracy, we got to do more of these sort of like industry deep dives because honestly, like seven nanometers, 10 nanometers, all these issues. Like, I feel like especially when you have someone like Stacy who can explain these things mm. um, very clearly, I could I, I could really get hooked on this stuff. Yeah, Stacy really stands out. I think um, he sort of makes cell side analysis sound fun, doesn't he? Like he, you can sense the enthusiasm in what he does. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I think that, like, you know, often um, maybe what sort of gets lost uh, in sell side is this sort of like focus on numbers and margins and all that stuff. And I think that he does a really good job of connecting the sort of like the hard tech questions mm. with the margins. So thinking about like sort of like, OK, they're ramping up 10 nanometers, even though the processes aren't great. So the yields are going to be lower. So the margins are going to be lower. The connecting the dots between the sort of technological debt that they have or the technological difficulties that they have with what actually falls through to the bottom line. He does that really well. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I really I mean, having spoken to him, I, I now feel like I, I need to listen to the next uh, Intel earnings call just to see if they let him on or not. Yeah, no, I'm interested in that, too. Also, like his point, um, you know. Taiwan is the most strategically important mm. place in the world right now. If like that's where all of the, um, you know, that's where basically all of the cutting edge semiconductor manufacturing is happening or a huge bulk of it. And it just feels like that story is like 
we got to talk more about it. I mean, that's huge. Yeah, well, not only the technological angle, but also the geopolitical angle as well. That's sort of been heating up recently, yeah. too. But yeah, I agree with that. That's a good way of putting it. Um, okay, shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest on Twitter, Stacy Razgin. He's at S Razgin. You can see him uh, subtweet companies or not. No one really knows <laughs> exactly what he's saying, but maybe he'll uh, do it again. Um, so definitely follow him there. Follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.